0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Cono. Democracy in America, Volume 1, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Chapter 17 Principal Causes Maintaining the Democratic Republic. Part 1. Principal Causes Which Tend to Maintain the Democratic Republic in the United States A democratic republic subsists in the United States, and the principal object of this book has been to account for the fact of its existence. Several of the causes which contribute to maintain the institutions of America have been involuntarily passed by or only hinted at as I was borne along by my subject. Others I have been unable to discuss and those on which I have dwelt most are, as it were, buried in the details of the former parts of this work. I think, therefore, that before I proceed to speak of the future, I cannot do better than collect within a small compass the reasons which best explain the present. In this retrospective chapter I shall be succinct, for I shall take care to remind the reader very summarily of what he already knows, and I shall only select the most prominent of those facts which I have not yet pointed out. All the causes which contribute to the maintenance of the Democratic Republic in the United States are reducible to three heads. 1. The peculiar and accidental situation in which Providence has placed the Americans. 2. The laws. 3. The manners and customs of the people. Accidental or providential causes which contribute to the maintenance of the Democratic Republic in the United States the Union has no neighbors, no metropolis, The Americans have had the chances of birth in their favor, America an empty country. How this circumstance contributes powerfully to the maintenance of the democratic republic in America. How the American wilds are peopled. Avidity of the Anglo-Americans in taking possession of the solitudes of the new world. Influence of physical prosperity upon the political opinions of the Americans. A Thousand Circumstances independent of the will of man, concur to facilitate the maintenance of a democratic republic in the United States. Some of these peculiarities are known, the others may easily be pointed out, but I shall confine myself to the most prominent amongst them. The Americans have no neighbors, and consequently they have no great wars, or financial crises, or inroads, or conquests to dread. They require neither great taxes, nor great armies, nor great generals. And they have nothing to fear from a scourge which is more formidable to republics than all these evils combined, namely, military glory. It is impossible to deny the inconceivable influence which military glory exercises upon the spirit of a nation. General Jackson, whom the Americans have twice elected to the head of their government, is a man of a violent temper and mediocre talents, No one circumstance in the whole course of his career ever proved that he is qualified to govern a free people, and indeed the majority of the enlightened classes of the Union has always been opposed to him. But he was raised to the presidency, and has been maintained in that lofty station solely by the recollection of a victory which he gained twenty years ago under the walls of New Orleans, a victory which was, however, a very ordinary achievement, and which could only be remembered in a country where battles are rare. Now the people, which is thus carried away by the illusions of glory, is unquestionably the most cold and calculating, the most unmilitary, if I may use the expression, and the most prosaic of all the peoples of the earth. America has no great capital city, whose influence is directly or indirectly felt over the whole extent of the country, which I hold to be one of the first causes of the maintenance of republican institutions in the United States in cities men cannot be prevented from concerting together from awakening a mutual excitement which prompts sudden and passionate resolutions cities may be looked upon as large assemblies of which all the inhabitants are members their populace exercises a prodigious influence upon the magistrates and frequently executes its own wishes without their intervention to subject the provinces to the metropolis is therefore not only to place the destiny of the empire in the hands of a portion of the community which may be reprobated as unjust, but to place it in the hands of a populace acting under its own impulses, which must be avoided as dangerous. The preponderance of capital cities is therefore a serious blow upon the representative system, and it exposes modern republics to the same defect as the republics of antiquity, which all perished from not having been acquainted with that form of government." It would be easy for me to adduce a great number of secondary causes which have contributed to establish, and which concur to maintain, the democratic republic of the United States. But I discern two principal circumstances amongst these favorable elements, which I hasten to point out. I have already observed that the origin of the American settlements may be looked upon as the first and most efficacious cause to which the present prosperity of the United States may be attributed. The Americans had their chances of birth in their favor, and their forefathers imported that equality of conditions into the country whence the democratic republic has very naturally taken its rise. Nor was this all they did, for besides this republican condition of society, the early settler bequeathed to their descendants those customs, manners, and opinions which contribute most to the success of a republican form of government. When I reflect upon the consequences of this primary circumstance, methinks i see the destiny of america embodied in the first puritan who landed on those shores just as the human race was represented by the first man the chief circumstance which has favored the establishment and the maintenance of a democratic republic in the united states is the nature of the territory which the american inhabit their ancestors gave them the love of equality and of freedom but god himself gave them the means of remaining equal and free by placing them upon a boundless continent which is open to their exertions General prosperity is favorable to the stability of all governments, but more particularly of a democratic constitution, which depends upon the dispositions of the majority, and more particularly of that portion of the community which is most exposed to feel the pressure of want. When the people rules, it must be rendered happy, or it will overturn the state, and misery is apt to stimulate it to those excesses to which ambition rouses kings." The physical causes, independent of the laws, which contribute to promote general prosperity, are more numerous in America than they have ever been in any other country in the world, at any other period of history. In the United States not only is legislation democratic, but nature herself favors the cause of the people. In what part of human tradition can be found anything at all similar to that which is occurring under our eyes in North America? The celebrated communities of antiquity were all founded in the midst of hostile nations, which they were obliged to subjugate before they could flourish in their place. Even the moderns have found, in some parts of South America, vast regions inhabited by a people of inferior civilization, but which occupied and cultivated the soil. To found their new states it was necessary to extirpate or to subdue a numerous population, until civilization has been made to blush for their success. But North America was only inhabited by wandering tribes, who took no thought of the natural riches of the soil, in that vast country was still, properly speaking, an empty continent, a desert land awaiting its inhabitants. Everything is extraordinary in America, the social condition of the inhabitants, as well as the laws, but the soil upon which these institutions are founded is more extraordinary than all the rest. When man was first placed upon the earth by the Creator, the earth was inexhaustible in its youth, but man was weak and ignorant and when he learned to explore the treasures which it contained hosts of his fellow-creatures covered its surface and he was obliged to earn an asylum for repose and for freedom by the sword at that same period north america was discovered as if it had been kept in reserve by the deity and had just risen from beneath the waters of the deluge that continent still presents as it did in the primeval time rivers which rise from never-failing sources green and moist solitudes and fields which the ploughshare of the husbandman has never turned. In this state it is offered to man, not in the barbarous and isolated condition of the early ages, but to a being who is already in possession of the most potent secrets of the natural world, who is united to his fellow men, and instructed by this experience of fifty centuries. At this very time thirteen millions of civilized Europeans are peaceably spreading over those fertile plains, with whose resources and whose extent they are not yet themselves accurately acquainted. Three or four thousand soldiers drive the wandering races of the Aborigines before them. These are followed by the pioneers who pierce the woods, scare off the beasts of prey, explore the courses of the inland streams, and make ready the triumphal procession of civilization across the waste. The favorable influence of the temporal prosperity of America upon the institutions of that country has been so often described by others, and adverted to by myself, that I shall not enlarge upon it beyond the addition of a few facts. An erroneous notion is generally entertained that the deserts of America are peopled by European emigrants who annually disembark upon the coasts of the New World, whilst the American population increases and multiplies upon the soil which its forefathers tilled. The European settler, however, usually arrives in the United States without friends, and sometimes without resources. In order to subsist he is obliged to work for hire, and he rarely proceeds beyond that belt of industrious population which adjoins the ocean. The desert cannot be explored without capital or credit, and the body must be accustomed to the rigors of a new climate before it can be exposed to the chances of forest life. It is the Americans themselves who daily quit the spots which gave them birth to acquire extensive domains in a remote country. Thus the European leaves his cottage for the transatlantic shores, and the American, who is born on that very coast, plunges in his turn into the wilds of Central America. This double emigration is incessant. It begins in the remotest parts of Europe, it crosses the Atlantic Ocean, and it advances over the solitudes of the New World. Millions of men are marching at once towards the same horizon. Their language, their religion, their manners differ, their object is the same. The gifts of fortune are promised in the West, and to the West they bend their course. No event can be compared with this continuous removal of the human race, except perhaps those eruptions which preceded the fall of the Roman Empire. Then, as well as now, generations of men were impelled forwards in the same direction to meet and struggle on the same spot. But the designs of providence were not the same. Then, every newcomer was the harbinger of destruction and of death, now every adventurer brings with him the elements of prosperity and of life the future still conceals from us the ulterior consequences of this emigration of the americans towards the west but we can readily apprehend its more immediate results as a portion of the inhabitants annually leave the states in which they were born the population of these states increases very slowly although they have long been established thus in connecticut which only contains fifty-nine inhabitants to the square mile the population has not increased by more than one-quarter in forty years, whilst that of England has been augmented by one-third in the lapse of the same period. The European emigrant always lands, therefore, in a country which is but half full, and where hands are in request. He becomes a workman in easy circumstances, his son goes to seek his fortune in unpeopled regions, and he becomes a rich landowner. This former amasses the capital which the latter invests, and the stranger as well as the native is unacquainted with want. The laws of the United States are extremely favorable to division of property, but a cause which is more powerful than the laws prevents property from being divided to excess. This is very perceptible in the states which are beginning to be thickly peopled. Massachusetts is the most populous part of the Union, but it contains only 80 inhabitants to the square mile, which is much less than in France, where 162 are reckoned to the same extent of country. But in Massachusetts estates are very rarely divided the eldest son takes the land, and the others go to seek their fortunes in the desert. The law has abolished the rights of primogeniture, and circumstances have concurred to re-establish it under a form of which none can complain, and by which no just rights are impaired. A single fact will suffice to show the prodigious numbers of individuals who leave New England, in this manner, to settle themselves in the wilds, We were assured in 1830 that 36 of the members of Congress were born in the little state of Connecticut. The population of Connecticut, which constitutes only one forty-third part of that of the United States, thus furnished one-eighth of the whole body of representatives. The states of Connecticut, however, only sends five delegates to Congress, and the 31 others sit for the new western states. If these 31 individuals had remained in Connecticut, it is probable that instead of becoming rich landowners, they would have remained humble laborers, that they would have lived in obscurity without being able to rise into public life, and that, far from becoming useful members of the legislature, they might have been unruly citizens. These reflections do not escape the observation of the Americans any more than of ourselves. It cannot be doubted, says Chancellor Kent in his Treatise on American Law, that the division of landed estates must produce great evils when it is carried to such excess as that each parcel of land is insufficient to support a family, But these disadvantages have never been felt in the United States, and many generations must elapse before they can be felt. The extent of our inhabited territory, the abundance of adjacent land, and the continual stream of emigration flowing from the shores of the Atlantic towards the interior of the country suffices yet, and will long suffice to prevent the parceling out of estates. It is difficult to describe the rapacity with which the American rushes forward to secure the immense booty which fortune proffers to him. In the pursuit he fearlessly braves the arrows of the Indian, and the distempers of the forest. He is unimpressed by the silence of the woods. The approach of beasts of prey do not disturb him. For he is goaded onwards by a passion more intense than the love of life. Before him lies a boundless continent, and he urges onwards as if time pressed, and he was afraid of finding no room for his exertions. I have spoken of the emigration from the older states, but how shall I describe that which takes place from the more recent ones? Fifty years have scarcely elapsed since that of Ohio was founded. The greater part of its inhabitants were not born within its confines. Its capital has only been built thirty years, and its territory is still covered by an immense extent of uncultivated fields. Nevertheless, the population of Ohio is already proceeding westward, and most of the settlers who descend to the fertile savannas of Illinois are citizens to Ohio. These men left their first country to improve their condition. They quit their resting place to ameliorate it still more. Fortune awaits them everywhere, but happiness they cannot attain. The desire of prosperity has become an ardent and restless passion in their minds which grows by what it gains. They early broke the ties which bound them to their natal earth, and they have contracted no fresh ones on their way. Emigration was at first necessary to them as a means of subsistence, and it soon becomes a sort of game of chance, which they pursue for the emotions it excites as much as for the gain it procures." sometimes the progress of man is so rapid that the desert reappears behind him the woods stoop to give him a passage and spring up again when he has passed it is not uncommon in crossing the new states of the west to meet with deserted dwellings in the midst of the wilds the traveller frequently discovers the vestiges of a log-house in the most solitary retreats which bear witness to the power and no less to the inconstancy of the man in these abandoned fields and over these ruins of a day The primeval forest soon scatters a fresh vegetation, and beasts resume the haunts which were once their own, and nature covers the traces of man's path with branches and with flowers which obliterate his evanescent track. I remember that, in crossing one of the woodland districts which still cover the state of New York, I reached the shores of a lake embosomed in forests coeval with the world. A small island, covered with woods whose thick foliage concealed its banks, rose from the center of the waters. Upon the shores of the lake no object attested the presence of man except a column of smoke, which might be seen on the horizon rising from the tops of the trees to the clouds, and seeming to hang from heaven rather than to be mounting to the sky. An Indian shallop was hauled up on the sand, which tempted me to visit the islet that had first attracted my attention, and in a few minutes I set afoot at banks. The whole island formed one of those delicious solitudes of the New World which almost led civilized man to regret the haunts of the savage. A luxuriant vegetation bore witness to the incomparable fruitfulness of the soil. The deep silence which is common to the wilds of North America was only broken by the hoarse cooing of the wood pigeon, and the tapping of the woodpecker upon the bark of trees. I was far from supposing that this spot had ever been inhabited, so completely did nature seem to be left to her own caprices but when I reached the centre of the isle, I thought that I discovered some traces of man. I then proceeded to examine the surrounding objects with care, and I soon perceived that a European had undoubtedly been led to seek a refuge in this retreat. Yet what changes had taken place in the scenes of his labours! The logs which he had hastily hewn to build himself a shed had sprouted afresh. The very props were intertwined with living verdure, and his cabin was transformed into a boer. In the midst of these shrubs a few stones were to be seen, blackened with fire and sprinkled with thin ashes. Here the hearth had no doubt been, the chimney, in falling, had covered it with rubbish. I stood for some time in silent admiration of the exuberance of nature and the littleness of man, and when I was obliged to leave that enchanting solitude, I exclaimed with melancholy, Are ruins, then, already here? in europe we are wont to look upon a restless disposition an unbounded desire of riches and an excessive love and independence as propensities very formidable to society yet these are the very elements which insure a long and peaceful duration to the republics of america without these unquiet passions the population would collect in certain spots and would soon be subject to wants like those of the old world which it is difficult to satisfy For such is the present good fortune of the new world, that the vices of its inhabitants are scarcely less favorable to society than their virtues. These circumstances exercise a great influence on the estimation in which human actions are held in the two hemispheres. The Americans frequently term what we should call cupidity a laudable industry, and they blame as faint-heartedness what we consider to be the virtue of moderate desires. In France, simple tastes, orderly manners, domestic affections, and the attachments which men feel to the place of their birth, are looked upon as great guarantees of the tranquillity and happiness of the state. But in America nothing seems to be more prejudicial to society than these virtues. The French Canadians, who have faithfully preserved the traditions of their pristine manners, are already embarrassed for room upon their small territory, and this little community, which has so recently begun to exist, Will shortly be a prey to the calamities incident to old nations in canada the most enlightened patriotic and humane inhabitants make extraordinary efforts to render the people dissatisfied with these simple enjoyments which still content it there the seductions of wealth are vaunted with as much zeal as the charms of an honest but limited income in the old world and more exertions are made to excite the passions of the citizens there than to calm them elsewhere if we listen to their eulogies we shall hear that nothing is more praiseworthy than to exchange the pure and homely pleasures which even the poor man tastes in his own country for the full delights of prosperity under a foreign sky to leave the patrimonial hearth and the turf beneath which his forefathers sleep in short to abandon the living and the dead in quest of fortune At the present time America presents a field for human effort far more extensive than any sum of labor which can be applied to work it. In America too much knowledge cannot be diffused, for all knowledge, whilst it may serve him who possesses it, turns also to the advantage of those who are without it. New wants are not to be feared, since they can be satisfied without difficulty. The growth of human passions need not be dreaded, since all passions may find an easy and a legitimate object. Nor can men be put in possession of too much freedom, since they are scarcely ever tempted to misuse their liberties. The American republics of the present day are like companies of adventurers formed to explore in common the wastelands of the new world, embusied in a flourishing trade. The passions which agitate the Americans most deeply are not their political but their commercial passions, or to speak more correctly, they introduce the habits they contract in business into their political life. They love order, without which affairs do not prosper, and they set an especial value upon a regular conduct, which is the foundation of a solid business. They prefer the good sense which amasses large fortunes to the enterprising spirit which frequently dissipates them. General ideas alarm their mind, which are accustomed to positive calculations, and they hold practice in more honor than theory. It is in America that one learns to understand the influence which physical prosperity exercises over political actions, and even over opinions which ought to acknowledge no sway but that of reason, and it is more especially amongst strangers that this truth is perceptible. Most of the European emigrants to the New World carry with them that wild love of independence, and of change, which our calamities are so apt to engender. I sometimes met with Europeans in the United States who had been obliged to leave their country on account of their political opinions. They all astonished me by the language they held, but one of them surprised me more than all the rest. As I was crossing one of the most remote districts of Pennsylvania I was benighted, and obliged to beg for hospitality at the gate of a wealthy planter, who was a Frenchman by birth. He bade me sit down beside his fire, and we began to talk with that freedom which befits persons who meet in the backwoods two thousand leagues from their native country i was aware that my host had been a great leveller and an ardent demagogue forty years ago and that his name was not unknown to fame i was therefore not a little surprised to hear him discuss the rights of property as an economist or a landowner might have done he spoke of the necessary gradations which fortune establishes amongst men of obedience to established laws of the influence of good morals and commonwealths and of the support which religious opinions give to order and to freedom he even went too far as to quote an evangelical authority in corroboration of one of his political tenets i listened and marveled at the feebleness of human reason a proposition is true or false but no art can prove it to be one or the other in the midst of the uncertainties of science and the conflicting lessons of experience until a new incident disperses the clouds of doubt i was poor I become rich, and I am not to expect that prosperity will act upon my conduct, and leave my judgment free. My opinions change with my fortune, and the happy circumstances which I turn to my advantage furnish me with that decisive argument which was before wanting. The influence of prosperity acts still more freely upon the American than upon strangers. The American has always been the connection of public order and public prosperity. Intimately united as they are, go on before his eyes, He does not conceive that one can subsist without the other, he has therefore nothing to forget, nor has he, like so many Europeans, to unlearn the lessons of his early education. End of chapter seventeen, part one.